Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you all had a great weekend and happy May. And for some of you, May is the last month of the school year, so you've got to be a little excited about that. We're going to finish strong and head into summer vacation. I know some of you are going in through June, uh, but many of you are finishing up in May and uh, summer vacation right around the corner. Uh, this is week two of three for me on the road. Uh, this week I'm in Hot Springs, Arkansas, finishing up our Assessment Coaching Academy with Lakeside High School, and then heading south to Crossette High School for some on-site coaching, uh, assessment coaching Thursday and Friday. I'll be in Arkansas next week as well. I absolutely loved my week in San Antonio last week, uh, one of my favorite places. Uh, the trainings were fantastic. I met some... <laughs> yeah, the trainings were fantastic, if I don't say so myself. No, I meant they were fantastic to be a part of. Uh, I was awesome. Uh, No, the trainings were great to be a part of. I met some wonderful new people and of course ate at so many great restaurants. Uh, My favorite restaurant in San Antonio uh, right now is Boudreaux's on the Riverwalk. Their shrimp and grits is incredible. The steaks are amazing. Uh, Scallop starter is ridiculous. The desserts, I had bread pudding one night. I had uh, key lime pie another night. Um, Honestly, like I said, I think it's the best restaurant on the Riverwalk. Their signature dish is their tableside guacamole. Now, I didn't order it because it's for two. It's, you know, it'd be too much. But um, that's where I first learned through watching them that when you make guacamole, knife and fork the avocado. Don't squish it. It adds way more air, makes it lighter and fluffier. Trust me, don't squish it. Slice it. You're welcome. <laughs> Maybe I need to add a segment to the podcast called Food Corner yeah, so I can just talk about food. Uh, some upcoming events you might be interested in. I've talked about a few of these before. Uh, if you're looking for that summer conference, annual conference on assessment and grading will be in Austin, Texas, July 18 through 20. That'll be myself, Cassandra Erkins, Angie Freeze, Tony Reibel, Garnet Hillman, Mandy Stalitz, and Katie White. Also a heads up on the fall conference, the Student Agency Institute, which will be in Laval, Quebec, October 24th to 26th. Along with myself, uh, the Institute will feature Karen Gasseth, Karen Power, Morgan Michael, uh, Katie White, and Andy Hargraves. All of the information for those two events will be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll have links in the show notes for them as well. One other conference I'm going to be at uh, this coming fall is the Teach Better Conference. Uh, You know that this podcast is part of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Well, the conference for the Teach Better Network is going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. There are a ton of great speakers lined up for that. I'll also have a link in the show notes for that as well. And I'm excited to go to that uh, conference because there are so many people that I'm connected to with the Teach Better Network that I've actually never met face-to-face. I've met them online, of course, but not face-to-face. And we're also having something called Podcast Row. So if you're coming to that conference, uh, come say hi, check it out. Um, Hope to see you there. All right. Thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And of course, a big thank you to longtime listeners. I certainly appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Mike Mattis. Mike is a prolific author who writes primarily about PLCs and RTI. Today, we're going to dig into the RTI at Work framework, and that'll be the main thrust of our conversation today. In an assessment corner, I'm going to talk about three strikes in grading reform that I want each and every school to avoid. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Mike Mattis is coming up. But first, I want you to add me. Because I want to open this week by inviting you to join me 
in a social media revolution. Okay, well, that might be a little hyperbolic, <laughs> but, but still, I want you to join me. A long-time listeners are quite familiar with my love-hate relationship with social media, especially when it comes to all the performative stuff. I mean, everything has become so strategic about building your brand and marketing yourself and all of those different things and becoming an influencer. And I'm fully aware that I'm probably guilty of doing that too and contributing to the problem. I get that. My biggest grievance with social media is just how fake it can be at times. I right now see social media as a necessary evil, but I've been thinking about and and saying for a number of years that people should have to be completely honest about the totality of their lives on social media. So for example, there should be a rule that says that for every picture of your vacation in Belize that you post, you should have to also post a picture of you cleaning a toilet or emptying the dishwasher. That way people know that your life isn't one big highlight reel and that you actually do real things. And you might be thinking to yourself, well... Tom, I don't really want to see you cleaning a toilet. (laughs) Well, guess what? Too bad. This is me. This is all of me in my 360-degree glory. And you get what you get when you follow me on social media, right? Now, the other part of social media that most of us have to live with is the fact that usually by the time we join a platform, the platform's kind of matured, and building a community or a following sometimes can be challenging because In the early days of a platform, there's kind of this relentless pursuit to build out your community. And then once you have it, you just kind of settle in. So this social media revolution that I'm talking about is going to allow you to do both of these things. It's going to allow you to get in early and allow you to keep it real. What am I talking about? It's the new social media platform I just joined and it's called Be Real. So what is Be Real? Well, here's how they explain it, and I'll quote them uh, in how they explain it. They say, every day at a different time, everyone is notified simultaneously to capture and share a photo within two minutes, and they call it a new and unique way to discover who your friends really are in their daily lives. So what I love about it is no filters, no editing. You get what you get in all of your authentic glory, and I have to tell you, I Love it. What I love about it is that you get a more honest look at what people are doing during the day. And in some ways, it's more authentic. It's an authentic look at people's lives, right? When you're connected to people on social media, do you really know them? I mean, to the extent that you could know anyone virtually, but seriously, do you know them? As I started to research the app and think about, you know, what was all about, I came across the story by Faith Karimi who is a uh, CNN business writer. And I'm going to quote a few things she wrote in the article. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the article as well. But here are some things that she said about Be Real. And this might be a little bit of overlap with what I just said, but just I want to read a few passages from, from the article. The concept, she says, of Be Real is simple. Once you download the app, you get a notification once a day that it's time to be real. That means you have two minutes to snap and post a photo of what you're doing, no matter how mundane. There's no set time. The notifications come at random times of the day, adding, she says, to the app's mystique, the mystery, when will I get the notification? With only one post a day, there's no clutter of friends' pictures to mindlessly scroll through. You can only see friends' posts if you share a photo, which eliminates the lurking. 
Now, some people turn off their location for privacy reasons since the app works in real time. And she also goes on to say that when you click on the once a day Be Real notification, your camera opens within the app along with a timer. It's a two minute countdown. You have until the timer runs out to take a picture of what's in front of you. And at the same time you're taking the picture of what's in front of you, your rear facing camera snaps a selfie. So the app ends up sharing both images, the picture of you and the picture of what's in front of you. Now you can retake those photos anytime during those two minutes, and then you share them with friends when you're ready. Now it also allows users, she says, to take and post the photo later in the day, but it lets your friends know how many hours passed the notification that you posted. So she says, in short, it kind of puts you on blast for your lack of spontaneity. So if you're trying to plan it out, oh, I just couldn't do it. Anyway, those are some things that she shares uh, in the article about, about, the, about the app. So this app or platform for me is everything I've always thought social media should strive to become, authentic. And I know the last thing anyone needs or wants is another social media account, but to only have to post once per day means you really can't get too obsessed with it. As she said, no lurkers, right? Um, not that I don't think anybody's going to be lurking my social media accounts. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but you're only connected to your friends and, and you, you kind of get to scroll through their photos to see only if you post something as well. Now, Be Real themselves says, you know, it's not going to make you famous. So if you're trying to be famous or you want to be an influencer, then stay on Instagram or TikTok. That's not what this app is all about. And I think this app has a lot of potential. You know, I heard about this app on a daily business podcast that I listened to. It's called The Peak Daily. It's a five to 10 minute Canadian business news podcast. And the co-hosts were talking about it. And so I decided to check it out and I thought it was kind of cool. So, hey, if you're interested, let's connect. Let's be friends. Let's keep it real, right? My handle is at Tom Shimmer. You can find me on there. Send a friend request or follow me and, and I'll follow you back and let's be part of reimagining what social media can be and what it was likely intended to be in the first place, which was to create an authentic online community where you get to know the real people, not just the filtered versions that has spawned so much of the catfishing that's taking place nowadays. I love everything about the idea that's driving this Be Real social media platform, and I hope you will too. And, uh, and this is free advertising for them, honestly, because nobody's, <laughs> nobody's paying me to do this or... Um, Nobody's asked me to do this. I, I'm promoting it on my own because I think it's a pretty cool idea. Uh, so uh, let's connect. Let's be part of this social media revolution. <laughs> let's start changing the social media landscape once and for all, right? Out with the fake, out with the phony. It's time to be real. Here with me this week is my friend and colleague, Mike Mattis. Mike began his career as a secondary history teacher. He's been a principal of an elementary school and a middle school, and both of those schools have been recognized as model professional learning communities. And for the past dozen years, Mike has focused on writing, and to be honest, Mike is the author or co-author of way too many books to count. 
And he's also been consulting on the PLC at Work process and how to create highly effective systemic interventions to ensure every student learns at higher levels, at grade level, uh, through that RTI at Work process. So that is going to be our focus of our conversation today, the RTI at Work process and framework. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Why, hello, Tom. Uh, honored, truly honored to be here. I enjoy your podcast. It's one of my favorites. So when you shot me an email saying, we'd like you be on, I thought, woohoo! <laughs> I made the Oscars of educational podcasts. Yes! My, yes! Oh, so, yeah. so, man, Tom, yeah. thank you so much. Looking forward right. to chatting with you. Fantastic. Yeah, I hope the check has arrived by now for uh, for that uh, little plug there. But uh, in all seriousness, I do appreciate it. You know, it's interesting because like so many connections in the 21st century, uh, you and I have run in similar circles. We have mutual friends. Uh, we've been connected uh, online for, for many years. Yep. But we met for the first time face to face this past February at the uh, PLC Summit in Phoenix. And it just reminds me of no matter how much you're connected online, how important those face to face uh, connections are. So I, I really, really was thrilled to finally get a chance to meet you face to face and thrilled to have you on the podcast. So I did mention you started your career as a history teacher. You've been a principal, but maybe, Mike, just give us a little bit more of a view uh, of the arc of your career and kind of what led you to this place now where you are this prolific uh, author, globally recognized speaker. Uh, you are this this force in education. Give us give us a sense of the, 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 the resume or the highlights of your career. You're, you're, you're very kind of saying that, Tom. I, uh, like, like many ed future educators, you, know, you, you reach that point, some point early in your life, hopefully, where you find your, your passion. For me, I went off to college. I thought I would be an architect at first, or my dad owned an insurance agency, and I thought I might go back to my hometown and take over dad's business. But sophomore year of, of, of uh, college, uh, the college had a had a had a two one two schedule where between semesters you had an interim class and for one month you took one class and that and that was it and uh, I signed up for a class called classroom to career and I got to help every day in a sixth grade classroom in an elementary school in our town and uh, and that was it I just I called my dad and said you're going to have to find someone else to take over the business someday dad because. Uh, I found my calling. It's just yeah. when you wake up in the morning and you feel like the world might be a little better place because of what you do, and and you know, I, I think the first time as a as a teacher, it could be a teacher, a teacher assistant, a volunteer, that moment when you see a kid get it, I often joke. I mean, I mean, it's a bad joke. Joke is like it's 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 like teacher crack. You're just yeah. you're just addicted. It's like oh oh my lord, that moment where a kid's eye just you just tell. They just got it and they just grew a little bit and they're bigger than they were. And what they just learned, though, they'll they will carry on for the rest of their life. And it's not just what they learn, that confidence all of a sudden of I can do that. It's like I just yeah. yep. So so I, I proudly say the biggest chunk of my career as a classroom teacher. I thought I would never leave the classroom. My bride is a fellow teacher. We taught side by side in classrooms for nine years at Moore Middle School in Redlands, California, Redlands Unified. Um, it, it, it was, I thought I'd never leave the classroom Yeah, and I did, I, I got a master's degree in admin just for a raise, nothing more, you know, you go up the pay scale and <laughs> when I, I, and so I thought, okay, I need to get a master's so I can make more, more money. And I got it in, in educational leadership, but never planned to use it. Um, had, 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 had 
uh, admin tell me, Mike, you make a great administrator someday. I'm like, I'll never go to the dark side. No, I won't do it. (laughs) And, uh, and honestly, I left the classroom for another raise. My daughter, my wife, and I's daughter, her name is Laurel. We have an only child. She was going from elementary school to middle school. And my wife, I taught middle school. You know, it's funny how parents often think if, if a spouse can stay home, they should stay at home during those early years. Uh, no, they don't get in trouble then. Um, they Kids can get in trouble later in life when they're old enough to make poor choices. Not that our daughter was. Yeah. So, but long story short, my wife and I said, hey, it'd be really cool if one of us can stay home. And so, uh, and, 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 and not full-time because we're teachers, we can't afford that, but, right. but part-time. So I said, if I became an administrator, I would get enough of a pay raise for that, that you could go and teach four periods a day instead of six, you'd be home when our daughter left in the morning when she got back. So, so I joined admin for that noble reason. Um, <laughs> and, and, and was very fortunate, um, served with, with a few outstanding principals and, and became, became an assistant principal two years later, a, a, a principal. And then the thing that changed the arc of my life as an educator and honestly as, as a person is I was required by a new soup as a first year principal to go hear this guy named Rick DeFore talk about professional learning communities. And I'd never heard of Rick DeFore and I never heard of PLCs. Didn't know the difference between a PLC and a BLT. And, uh, <laughs> and I had, you know, like most ed- educators, I'd gone through the, this two shell pass of leaders. I never had a soup for more than about two years of my whole career at that point. So right. I thought, okay, I'll learn the new soups thing that will play the game for a couple of years. And, uh, and, and within an hour of that training, you know, I was hooked. Not because Rick was a silver-tongued devil. It just made sense. There are things I think is at educators we intuitively know would serve kids better. Like we'd work collaboratively. Like they'd be our kids and they get our collective knowledge and skills. And and you need to embed some extra help during during the school day when you got the kids there to actually make sure they get what they need and. There are some standards that are more important than others. And and one thing I didn't know, unfortunately, back then, Tom, was the power of form of assessment. <laughs> I've heard you yeah. tell your story about that as a teacher. It's like, I, not, not that. When my wife and I team taught, um, we were on a, on, on a year-round school, and, and we were the A18, the A track of year-round and, uh, and, 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 and eighth grade. And it was a year in which they closed one middle school, dissolved it. Of course, the school across town of mostly kids of poverty, split those kids up into two other schools because of overcrowding. And the principal assigned us the track of parents who didn't even fill out the form to choose what track they wanted. So almost all the kids were coming from the school that was dissolved. They were eighth graders. So they were at their school. They felt like their school was ripped from them. And it was. And... And so it's an English, math, science, and social studies teacher. And we're like, these kids are going to need us more, more, more than ever. So we started things like interdisciplinary units where we connected across all of our uh, courses, some key themes. And, and we started an intervention period. The whole school didn't do it. We were on a rotating schedule. So mm-hmm. period one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and seven became one, right? Well, we realized these kids need extra help and they can't stay. They all ride buses across town. So what if we, every day we taught one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh period. We just share kids for our interventions because that class will be the first class tomorrow. We'll make up the lesson that they missed. And then we'll go one, two, three, four, five, six. That class will get, and, and we share kids across. And here's, here's, here, here's my point. 
what we were trying to do just because it kind of made sense for kids. It's like my best year teaching ever. When Rick described the PLC process, it's like, I never thought how that could be done systematically across the whole school. So it's just like connected dots, like, and I went back to that, the schoolhouse principal and we, and we started, we started the journey, no, no additional training. And I sucked at it at first and didn't address culture, all sorts of things. But thank God that staff was so dedicated. It's like, well, it might not be working yet. We just got to stick with it. And when within three years, the number of kids proficient in math at that school doubled and language arts tripled in three years with no additional staff, no hire a bunch of, or buy a bunch of programs, just committing to best practice, right? The power of guaranteeing Bible curriculum, the power of common assessments used in a formative way, right? Just high leverage practices that every kid got. Um, so as you mentioned, I was fortunate to serve at two principals became model professional learning communities. Last piece here. I, the same way I never really planned to be a principal, I just, you know, my, my career kind of fell in, in that direction. What I do now, uh, write and consult and present, I never planned to do that. That was family need too. I left site because my daughter was going off to college and she was accepted at Brown University and we live in California and that's cross country. We're like, how can we support our daughter? How how could I be a back to school night or not back to school night, a parent, parent weekend? When it's cross country and my wife's a teacher and I'm a principal, we won't leave our own schools for that. And and Solution Tree at that point, and Rick DeFord asked me, would you be an associate on our work? And if we're not available, would you help train people on it? And and I was doing that in the summer and some things like that. The district was really cool. They supported me with it. But but I thought if I could present full time, it would free up my calendar. And that's still teaching. And I found when I left the principalship and started to teach adults, oh, that passion to planning instruction again. Oh, it's why well, I thought I'd never leave the classroom. Now I'm back to teaching and never thought I'd write. My dear friend and mentor, Rick DeVore, told me, well, when you write someday, Mike, I'm like, no, I'm never going to write a book. There's no way. Like, no, Mike, when you write someday, he goes, this, this is what Rick told me. He goes, Mike, you know something when you can study it. You know it better when you can apply it. You know it even better when you can teach someone else and you know it best when you write about it. Tom, would you, would like, you agree with that? I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point because it just forces you into that deeper thought about the topic and it forces you to do the research. It forces you to really immerse yourself uh, in all of that work. So yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. You had and mentioned you know, the I, idea of, oh yeah, you know, go ahead. No, I, I, I just want one, one more point. I didn't think about writing, write, write about two that's like different. If I'm teaching someone live, and I can look the learner in the face, mm-hmm. you can see where they haven't gotten what you've said. I mean, that's the best formative feedback possible, right? Watching Absolutely. the response of that learner. You write mm-hmm. a book, you don't get to follow the book with that reader and sit by them and said, did, did like, you understand that last section? <laughs> so you really got to be clear about how you talk about that's it. Right. That's right. And that's so, right. And so the writing has always been about projects that I felt like I, it would help educators because I don't see a book on, on this topic like that. Yeah. And it challenges me to continue to grow as an educator. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's how I fell into where, to where I'm at now. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I think, you know, it's funny. I think so many uh, of us who do this work share kind of similar stories about how it wasn't the grand plan, but things just kind of fell into place. You know, things open up, you happen to meet the right person, you go to the right training, yeah. the right idea sort of resonates with you. That really does happen to a lot of folks who end up, you know, 
leaving the classroom, leaving the school, doing this work full time for sure. I, I was going to mention earlier, you you talked about common sense, and it's so interesting how sometimes we almost overthink things. It just it's just common sense that we collaborate and we work together. No one in any school has all of the answers, but collectively we do. We have the answers, and we have the opportunity to create those systems uh, totally for right. our students. And totally. I did also appreciate the uh, the little flex there uh, with uh, Brown University. That was well played there, Mike. Yeah, I like barely made it into college, and my daughter. I mean, you, you always want the next generation yeah. to be better course. than you. Oh my! Yeah, oh, no, oh, fantastic. Oh my lord, my daughter's brilliant. <laughs> what a what a great accomplishment for her. Okay, so let's let's start with the RTI work model. And I and I think yeah. when folks first encounter the RTI model, the very first question that I tend to hear a lot and and as as people interact with it, because I do talk about the model tangentially in terms of when I talk about student accountability and all of that sort of work. But the question is, why is the pyramid upside down? That's the question that I often hear from people. I think folks are used to the pyramid or the triangle being sort of uh, pointing upwards and this triangle, why, why is the triangle upside so, down? Why did right. you go with that kind of model, Mike? Yeah, so in our RTI at work approach, why is our visual of RTI, the yeah. traditional pyramid is inverted, exactly right. 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 Now, when we think about that pyramid, it's just a graphic organizer. That's right. all it is. It's a visual to capture thinking, like a Venn diagram. Venn diagram is very powerful to help kids Think about compare and contrast, but they got to understand the thinking behind it. If not, it's just interlocking circles. Well, I honestly feel that that traditional RTI pyramid is a blessing and a curse. Blessing, if you interpret it properly, um, it can really help a school think about what are the resources and, and instructional practices, outcomes, processes we need to have in place to meet ultimately the learning needs of, of all kids. Sadly, though, if you misinterpret the pyramid and actually takes you farther from that goal, it could be detrimental. So that leads to this. The traditional RTI pyramid is broken in, into tiers. Tier one, what all kids get. And tier two, supplemental help. Tier three, intensive support. But usually in, 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 in the States, in the States more than in Canada, mm -hmm. um, above tier three, they write special ed. And so visually, the whole pyramid looks like it's pointing to what? getting kids to special ed. Mm -hmm. And the tiers are just kind of the hoops, the paperwork, the process you have to jump through to get kids to traditional special ed testing. Now, RTI does have a secondary benefit. It is a superior way to identify kids with learning disabilities, more so than the traditional discrepancy model. But here's the catch. It only works if you don't try to qualify kids for special ed. The assumption from the very beginning is it's not the kid. It's us. We have not provided the right levels of targeted support this child might need for them to succeed. And if we've applied the right processes and, and, and proven pedagogies, guess what? Almost every kid is, is going to succeed, even kids who might have mild disabilities. But if what you're doing is working for almost every kid, but some kids are flatlining, that might be a sign that that child has a unique learning need. That might be a sign that a child might have a disability. And it, it, it would be appropriate then to ask the parent, can we assess? Not to quit on your child. We've got to better understand the cause of the problem. But here's the most important thing. You know it's not, it's not you. It's not our lack of providing best practice. We're going to take us out of the equation first. And we need to know that by committing to best practice. Hmm. Well, 
many of the states in the US, when RTI became the law of the land, they tied it to special ed law. And so lots of states made the secondary benefit the primary benefit. This is just the new way to qualify kids for special ed. Mm -hmm. And so when people look at the visual, it's like, oh, so yeah, so all kids start, start tier one. When that doesn't work, move them to tier two for X number of weeks, document it. Now test them for special ed. No, 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 we got to try tier three, document it. Now we can test them. And traditional special ed services, both in the States and, and in Canada, um, do you see those kids growing leaps and bounds? We got 50 years of special ed has not worked. Yeah. You know, in fact, it's been detrimental to most kids. If you look at the stats in the U.S., it's horrific. Not because of the efforts of special ed teachers. They're not the problem. Special ed in the States was never started to help kids learn. It was a civil rights law to allow special needs kids to attend school at all. Mm-hmm. So I often say this. If you see RTI as a new way to put kids in special ed, what magical thing do you think is going to happen when they get there? Because what's happening to the kids right now in SPED? So here's the concept. We wanted to challenge the traditional thinking of the pyramid point special ed. So we thought, if we don't visually change the look, then how do you have someone go, I got to think about that differently. So we thought the pyramid shouldn't be point of special ed. We should flip it. And you're really pointing on each kid. You start with what all kids need to succeed to what supplemental supports these kids need to finally what this kid needs in our school to succeed. But the whole time you're drilling deeper into the individual kids and needs of kids instead of the whole goal is, can I test them now? Okay. Can I test them now? (laughs) We filled out that document. Can we test them now? Yeah. That's, that's, that's not the thing. So that's why our pyramid is inverted. I think the point is well taken that when you change the visual, you really do cause people to say, okay, that's different than what I'm used to seeing. And therefore it it causes that thinking because I could see that misinterpretation for sure. I know that's not the intent of the original sort of uh, MTSS, PBIS, RTI uh, pyramid, but, but that can be the misinterpretation for sure, as this is just a process the way I process the student until, until they qualify for supplemental funding. And you're right about special education in the sense that, um, you know, so often it becomes a one-way door and there's just no way out of that. And it's very alluring for schools because of supplemental funding and all that's associated with that. So um, I can see the, the, the idea. And I think it's just a question that people often wonder is like, why is the pyramid upside down? And so I appreciate the, the fact that it's, it's about causing me to rethink uh, the entire framework itself. Yeah. Now, we know um, a school does not have to be a professional learning community to implement an RTI continuum. Those two things do not have to be uh, in both in place. But of course, from your perspective and from my perspective, there is great advantage to being a professional learning community as you implement an RTI framework. So connect those dots for us. What's the advantage of the professional learning community and its connection to the RTI at work model? You bet. You know, if, 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 if you look, let's back up here. We as educators should be committed to best practice. When a preponderance of evidence and research in the field says it's a better way to do something, then gosh darn it, we have a professional and moral obligation to commit to it. We know at every school, some kids are going to need some extra help. So if we're going to intervene and look at traditional special ed, we're not getting the results from that, then it's like, okay, what would be the proven practices? Well, John had a meta-analysis of the dependable research on RTI 
um, 1.29 standard deviation growth in a single school year. I mean, that's two to three years growth in a year. Mm-hmm. So I frame the, your, your great question that way for this reason. So then if people say, well, then we should commit to RTI is it's proven to work. Yeah. It's proven to work if you do it right. Like the power of formative assessments. I'm talking here with with one with one of the global gurus in assessment and and in grading. People can say we do formative assessment. And yet we would we, we, like you agree, not in name only does that mean you're doing formative assessment. Exactly. There's a quality of practice. And mm-hmm. form assessment is one of the most powerful interventions we know of when kids get targeted feedback on where they're at towards a learning goal, right? But that only matters with the quality of the feedback and are your grading practices aligned to those outcomes too, right? There's a whole list of things where it's like, oh, well, we gave a test mid-unit. That's formative. No, right, right. right. that can be just as summative as anything else, right? Exactly, exactly. It's not just you commit to the right work. You got to do the right work right. So Mm -hmm. I would contend this. I don't think you can do RTI or MTSS, a multi-tier system of support well, unless you function as a professional learning community. Yeah, you're right. There is no law that says you must be a PLC to do RTI. But if you are committed to doing it right, if you want to leverage the power of the process and why, and and so why do we say that? One, would you agree if we're going to collectively respond when kids don't learn, then we've got to work collaboratively. There's got to be embedded time in our contractual week to get the right people around, around the table to be able to discuss what kids need and to take collective responsibility. So there's got to be some collaborative school-wide structure. Well, the PLC is what? The very purpose or definition of it is educators working collaboratively to ensure all kids learn at high levels. The whole reason why we collaborate is to ensure that kids learn. Right. You know, four critical questions drive the PLC process when we collaborate. What do you want kids to learn? How do you know if they've learned it? How do you respond when kids don't learn? How do you respond when kids do? That third question, how do we respond when kids don't learn? We, not me and my class, we. That's the RTI question. Answer me this. Can you answer question three if you have an answer question one and two? We don't have agreement amongst teachers who teach a particular course or grade what kids have to learn in the first place. Because you can't intervene on everything. And if teachers who teach the same course, the same grade, don't agree upon what the most essential curriculum is or the scope and sequence of when to teach it, how do you share kids for interventions? Can't. So you got to create that, as Marzano would say, a guaranteed and viable curriculum. The PLC process, Marzano validates. He says, if you don't, to create a guaranteed and viable curriculum, if you don't get down to the teacher level having input into that process, you don't have a guaranteed and viable. So the PLC process is getting down to the team level on the site. What's most important for kids to learn, right? How do you know kids have learned it? That is the formative and common assessment question. And- Tom, I'm going to toss the question to you now. Do you think you could do interventions well if you do not both formatively and at times collectively assess students around essential learning targets? No, of course not. You, you, you know, all the interventions are based on assessment evidence. And that's why, you know, assessment really does drive those four questions because the first two are assessment questions. The second two are responding to assessment evidence questions. And so the assessment piece is critical for us to have those conversations about next steps for each and every learner. Totally. And, but, and, and by the way, audience, I'm going to quick, quick tangent here. Tom was so nice. He said we got to meet in person recently. I got to meet him in person by watching him present. You are an exceptional educator. Oh, you, thank you. You, 
You talked about PLCs and RTI better than I could talk about it. The way you talked about the way the assessment is the thread that goes across. Yeah. Thank so, you, Mike. I appreciate that. You know, I'm seriously phenomenal. So, so, so that being said, in in the states, when they made RTI the law of the land, schools started to jump in straight into then how do we intervene? Let's make an intervention period. Let's start to buy programs to help kids intervene. Right. But they never built the collaborative structures. They never built instructional clarity of what they want kids to learn. They haven't embedded the right formative assessments along the way, but they're going to intervene. So they got this new intervention period built into the school day and they don't know how to target it, how to use it. These teachers keeping their own kids. They're trying to recover everything and teachers yeah. are frustrated. And then they say this, RTI doesn't work. No, you aren't doing it well. <laughs> because you don't have an RTI problem. You have a what you're doing all day problem. You haven't embedded the right practices in your core instruction. So we're prepared to collectively respond. The right. PLC process is the foundation. You would never build a house and start with the roof. You'd start with the foundation and build upon it. Tier one, if you if you if you embed the professional learning community process and just how you do business at school every day and every week, that will build the conditions for an effective system of interventions to work. Without that, I think you set teachers and schools and administrators up to fail. Absolutely, your uh, your decisions about interventions could be based on inaccurate information based on poorly designed assessments. And none of us, as I said earlier, have all the answers, but collectively we do. And if we're trying to make these decisions in our classrooms by ourselves in isolation, at some point, it may not be egregious, but at some point we are, we are going to run out of ideas or we're going to run out of opportunities or run out of options on our own and, and having other people to that collective teacher efficacy that John Hattie and others talk so much Huge. about. Huge. Absolutely. Huge. Yeah. So let's, I want to talk, this is going to a bit of a setup here, Mike, because not, I'm not setting you up. I want to set up the question. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> I'm setting you up here, Mike. Yeah, set you up, uh, Mike. Here we go. Uh, unexpected. Uh, I'm, ready. Talk for, I'm ready. I want to talk, that's right. I want to talk for a moment about tier two, because I, I would be of the mindset that tier two is actually the key to an effective and efficient three-tiered continuum. Um, because it can be the one that eludes early adopters uh, kind of in this way. And, and like I said, bear with me on this. I, I want to set this up a little bit. Sure. So most understand the importance of tier one, right? We've got to have effective class-wide or school-wide instruction around behavior or academics, you know, the effective teaching practices, assessment practices, all the things that we invest in. And I think most understand that at some point, we're going to get to a place where we're going to have to personalize for the individual learner. We're going to have to give intensive supports unique to that learner to help them reach proficiency. But I often see schools mistakenly jump from tier one to tier three, and they kind of skip over tier two. They rush right to that individualized support. So first, I guess the one question I would ask, do you agree with my assertion about tier two? But the second more important question is, what are some of the hallmarks of tier two that can help uh, schools manage because one of the problems, problems, challenges, et cetera, is that each tier is more labor intensive. And so if you inadvertently escalate the number of students in each tier, you're going to, it's going to be triage. You're not going to have the time. So for me, that's why tier two is such an important piece. Okay. So what are the hallmarks from your perspective of an effective and efficient tier two system of support? The way you describe the tiers, tier one, best first practice, um, tier two, supplemental, uh, traditionally small group support, tier three, getting down to the individual level, more intensive, meaning usually kids are getting it every day. 
right. I would, I would challenge the way you define the tiers. Yeah. Um, even though the way you've described it is, I think, exactly the way most traditional research uh, descriptions of the tiers, the way you talked about there is the way I, most people would interpret it. But that's not the way we interpret it in our RTI work process. So okay. traditionally, they describe the differences between tiers is usually so the difference between tier two and tier three are often things like size of intervention group, frequency of the intervention, duration of the intervention, mm -hmm. things like that. In our RTI work approach, we disagree. We believe the tiers are different learning outcomes. So not uncommon for people to say the key to tier one is effective first teaching. I don't disagree, but here's the key. It has to be on grade level essential curriculum. Oh, yeah. So we believe tier one is not just good best practice. Tier one is all kids having access to grade level essential curriculum. You can teach a child effectively at tier one. If their learning outcomes are below grade level, they'll learn well below grade level. So I always ask this question. If you take a child out of grade level curriculum, put them in below grade level coursework, teach a child below grade level all day, every day, where will they end up at the end of the year? Mm -hmm below grade level. I mean, where'd you think they were going to end up? So those kids never catch up because we, 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 we replace access to grade level or post-secondary curriculum. We replace it with remedial coursework and justified as we're teaching them to their level. Well, that's just ability grouping or tracking, right? So Hattie says ability grouping, meta analysis, a 0.12 practice. <laughs> kids grow 0.1 by not even attending school. And he goes, that's for all kids. For the kids in the lowest track, he says it's profoundly negative impact because mm -hmm. you trap them below grade level. So, 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 so what we're saying is this tier one, yes, we want best first teaching, but it's all kids having access to grade level essential curriculum. The things we've identified through PLC question one, all kids must learn this year to be ready for next year. That then leads to tier two. Is tier two small group instruction? No. The defining characteristic of tier two is extra time and support to master grade level essential curriculum. Can we agree for every teacher, I don't care how effective you are, you'll reach a point where you've taught something in your initial core instruction, a unit of study, let's say. You reach a point where you assess kids, end of unit assessment, most kids can do it. That means you gotta move on to your next unit, your next topic. You can't wait for every kid to master something before you move forward, you never move forward. And that's not fair to kids who have mastered the curriculum. But what if you taught a, a learning outcome, a, a, an essential stand, a power stand, priority stand, whatever name you want to call it, something you, that you, your colleagues agree, every kid's got to get that for success next year or next course forward. Then there must be additional time and support within the school day because the kid might not learn it by the end of the unit. That's okay. They got to learn it by the end of the year. Yeah. So, so, so the hallmark of, of tier two interventions would be two or three things here. One, we are reteaching very specific standards or learning targets, pieces of standards. The parts that kids are missing on not just any old standard, the things that are absolutely most important. Two, we are collectively responding. So it's not at tier two, I keep my kids in, in differentiate. That's a one room schoolhouse model. We've tried that one, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a field of education for a few hundred years, never worked for all kids. So we're going to respond. This is where the power of targeted form of assessment comes in. We know by student, by standard, by learning target, who's getting it. 
And if we're a team, we're using them in common to what? Discuss what worked and what didn't in our teaching from evidence of student learning, because giving kids more of what didn't work the first time you taught is probably not going to be the answer. And the concept of tier one and tier two then is this. Unlike traditional special ed, a wait to fail model where kids have to drop far enough behind to qualify for the help, we want to be proactive. The first sign a kid starts to struggle, we should be responding. We have a student learn how to read in first grade. We're teaching constant about constant blend. We teach it to a point where most first graders can do it. We've got to move on to our next phoning. But we got seven or eight kids here who still can't do it. Let's give them target extra help right now, right now, right now. We're not going to delay, not wait, right now. If we nip that problem now, we won't have the second grader who can't decode. And now that kid's on a path to what? Qualify for special ed because they're getting a big old gap. No, no, no. We nipped it early, right? So tier one and tier two then are proactive processes. Will tier two be small group? Well, it, it might be because you hope you taught things well enough the first time that, that most kids got it, right? So you'll have fewer kids. But instead of worrying about small group, you should worry more about targetedness. Kids in the same group with the exact same need. A yeah. question I often ask teachers is this. If you had a choice for intervention time to work with five kids with five different needs or 12 kids with the same need, which one would you rather do? And they always say the same thing. 12. Why? They get it. Five kids, five different needs. That's five preps. Each kid, right. 20% of me. 12 yeah. kids, same need. I'm white on rice. They're 100% engaged the whole time. Mm -hmm. So tier two could be small group or it could be larger as long as we've assessed to a point we know by student, by standard, by learning target. Yeah. Now, last point then. So then what's tier three? Tier three is intensive remediation when kids walk in lacking essential skills from prior years. And that, these are the kids that have to grow multiple years in a year. I'm in fifth grade. I read at a third grade level. I grow a year's, year's worth of reading growth in a year. I'm still just as far behind. Now, here's the last point then. You don't move kids from tier two tier. The tiers are value added. The kid who walks into fifth grade reading at a third grade level who might need tier three reading support is the same kid who's probably not going to learn the fifth grade language arts curriculum the first time it's taught. Mm -hmm. If they miss the fifth grade essential language arts curriculum at tier one, for sure, they'll enter sixth grade behind. While you worked on remedial reading, they dropped a year behind in language arts. So, of course, all kids get tier one access to grade level. And tier two is extra help on that grade level. And that kid who's super behind in reading was going to need that too. So, all of a sudden, the mindset changes. We're not skipping tier two because we're jumping straight to tier three. These are different learning outcomes. And when kids need all three, all three outcomes, we got to build a system, a schedule in which all three are possible. When we start yeah. to view the tiers as learning outcomes instead of just instructional intensity, all of a sudden it's like, well, of course you wouldn't skip tier two. Of course we wouldn't. Because right. that kid needs that need too. That is in the RTI process how we define the tiers. Yeah, for sure. And and the layering of the support, it's not about exclusivity to one tier or the other. And I think the characterization of uh, group-based is not about an orthodoxy of small group instruction. It's more about an efficiency that, that would you rather teach 12 students who have the same need or five students with five different needs? I think there's efficiency that's good, but, but your point is well taken about sort of the refocus of, 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 of the tiers. But I, I don't know that I've ever thought of, of it being an orthodoxy around small group instruction. It was more about small groups emerge with similar needs and similar intervention needs. But, but I think right. we've, um, right. I think we've, we've yeah, talked about that. Yeah. And, and I totally, I totally agree and yeah. understand with what you're saying, but yeah. what happens at schools is this, we're in elementary school. Uh, 
we, we have to do RTI and, and MTSS. So we're going to create RTI time. So let's say it's 30 minutes right. every day to give kids what they need. And we're going to group kids by need. Okay. In fifth grade, we got six kids who are multiple years below grade level in in a in a reading. So that's the small group that we're going to do. And they need a lot of help. We'll have them get that help every time. For some kids who are close to grade level, oh, they need some extra help on their current coursework. Right. Those same kids you just sent for the tier three support need that same thing happen in tier two for extra up at grade level, but they're missing that. Why? Because we're grouping kids by need, but we're not seeing that 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 there are actually multiple levels of learning outcomes that some right. kids need because we're you know so 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 the idea of grouping kids by need makes sense but we still got to re remember big picture if you want to meet the learning needs of all kids all kids need access to grade level essential curriculum and yeah. extra help on that grade level and some will also in addition to that need that intensive support yeah absolutely Okay, so uh, as we finish up here, Mike, uh, I want to focus on maybe some unfortunate shortcuts that that schools take. So there's efficiency, and of course, we're always seeking uh, efficiency and implementation. But then there's the allure of finding a shortcut because, yeah. uh, you know, reshaping a culture is challenging, and uh, certainly reshaping a culture around a three-tiered framework of RTI could be could be very challenging for some schools. So the allure, of course, is when you think you've found the secret sauce you sort of take these shortcuts, but those so-called shortcuts will often backfire for schools as they, as they try to implement long-term. So from your perspective, when it comes to RTI and the RTI at work model, what are some of those alluring shortcuts that we need to avoid if we're going to implement RTI at work with, uh, with a level of fidelity? You know, um, uh, I'll, 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 I'll tie it to right now coming off of this pandemic. You know, I'm, I'm extremely pleased in, in the states that our governmental leaders at the state and federal level understand that kids have been impacted by this pandemic. We have more kids with holes than ever before. And, and, and they have committed to a significant amount of supplemental funding to help, to help schools. I think that's phenomenal. You know, often public ed, Education gets a short stick sometimes when it comes to the resources that would be most beneficial. That leads to, to the shortcuts. My fear right now is people are going to try to buy their way out of doing the right work. Hmm. So that's it. You know, instead of changing the structure of what we do all day to work collaboratively and to get clarity on what we want kids to learn and investing in teaching our, and applying best assessment practices. It'll, it'll be this. Okay, we got struggling readers. So what program can can like we buy out there? A program in a box that we can throw kids into. And then instead of having our teachers be part of the intervention process, why don't we take our extra fine and just hire extra staff so that so that there are more people for teachers to send kids to? Yeah. Well, we've already had a mindset through special ed of regular teachers thinking this way. I teach tier one when kids don't get it. Who do I send them to? No, no, no. They're all our kids. We're going to leverage both classroom teachers and support staff. Um, the idea of, well, we, we, we need to create a guaranteed and valuable curriculum. Well, let's just buy it. Well, we're supposed to do formative assessment. We'll buy our formative assessments. <laughs> right? Right. right. So, so the shortcuts, are, and Rick DeFore used to say it this way. He used to say, when you take educators out of the work, you take them out of the learning. What we're trying to implement here 
to improve student achievement is not about hiring more people and buying new programs. It's committing to the right practices and pedagogies. And if we commit to these things now, when the funding boost stops, which it will in two years, we will still have grown the capacity of our staff to continue to, to, to implement these best practices. You know, we know it takes up being like common assessments used in a formative way. Hattie says that's a 0.9 practice, teachers working in isolation, average teaching ability is a 0.3. We triple our effectiveness with that practice. You can't buy an intervention program in a box right now that has anything close to a 0.9 impact rate. No, no. And so, and so the, I would, I would caution any school, any district leadership from being seduced by we are capitalistic nations. Are there some good programs out there? Yes, but they'll be sold as, Hey, just buy this. You know, and have your teachers follow this program with fidelity and watch those kids grow. Ready made. Uh, It's ready made for you. For anyone who's led the process on site or district level to record achievement, it was never about a program that they bought. It was about a deep commitment to best practice and and engaging our teachers and our staff in in practicing and owning the work. So that's 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 my fear right now. Yeah. Yeah. Best practices by the people, not programs. Right. That's yep. a good way yep. to phrase that for sure. Okay. Yep. Two questions yep. left as we finish up, Mike, this has been great. I really appreciate the time you've spent uh, here with us. Uh, two, two questions as we finish up there are questions. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and uh, here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction that you want to. Um, but educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Um, it's a great question. Uh, I'm going to answer it two ways because one, one, I'm going to toss back to you. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, one, um, we had kids failing in school before the pandemic. So kind of hard to blame our lack of best practice on the pandemic, but we got to agree. If you look globally, um, not every kid equally benefited from that shift to virtual learning and in and out of school and social distancing and keeping kids safe. And the stats say the kids who were hurt the most were most likely the kids who were already struggling. So what am I afraid of? We have a generation of kids that if we don't get them caught up, we, 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 we have damned those kids for a lifetime of, especially in an ever increasing global economy where our kids are going to compete across the world for the same jobs. And their jobs built around innovation, technology, and service jobs, higher level thinking jobs. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard to succeed without a strong academic base of skills of higher level thinking. If we don't catch these kids up, I, I literally think the, the, the future of our children and our children's children are going to depend upon what we do as a, as, as a profession right now. And we've got to be bold about rethinking what we do to double down on the practice proof of the work. That's one. The other thing too is if I had a magic wand and I could change one thing in every school right now, it would be archaic grading practices that even when you commit to better practice, unfortunately, the way we grade kids sucks hope, sucks the ability for kids to fix errors. If I could just do a magic wand and say, you could change one thing. We would change the mindset of teachers and kids so quickly if we could change the mindset that would lead to a change of practice on how we 
move from assessment to how that how that translate into grading practices. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. you're pre preaching. Yeah, no, no, right now, <laughs> now, now, I know this is your podcast, but I want to know, hey, Tom, what keeps you up at night? Uh, that is one of them. I think right now what keeps me up at night is um, our collectively our students' mental health. Uh, and their mental well-being. Uh, I think that uh, when I think about what you were saying, I, I, I do agree that there are certainly uh, aspects of learning that need to be caught up and are urgent, uh, you know, literacy skills, fundamental numeracy skills, et cetera. But I also think that we also have an engagement crisis in terms of our students that they've kind of mentally checked out of school in many places and re-engaging them in learning will help accelerate that catch up. So for me, it's, um, I think we still don't know the impact that the pandemic has had from a trauma perspective. And listeners, you've heard me talk about this in, in past episodes, just about the impact that assessment can have on, uh, you know, in terms of trauma-informed assessment practices, et cetera. Yep. But I, for me, it's about it's about the the emotional and mental uh, and, and even physical and cognitive well-being of, of our learners. I think we are still in the midst of, of the pandemic to a point and, and we still don't know exactly what the residual effect of this is going to end up being. So, um, for me, that, that does keep me up at night for sure. So great Mike, it's really great for you to invite me on your podcast. I appreciate the question. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want to learn too, Tom. I, I learned too. Here, Mike, I asked yeah. the questions. All right. No, it's all yeah. good. It's all good. All right. Last questions as we, uh, we finish up today. Uh, it's a question about success, personal success, professional success. Again, take it in any direction you want to go. Uh, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Um, success is being able to look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and feel like the world is a little better place because of the contributions that you provided that day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that way personally or, or professionally, yeah. the people that I touch in my life, I hope that, that if it's someone I love dearly or a stranger, I, I hope that the world is a better place because of what I did. Yeah. If more, if more of my days end that way, then, then, then I feel my time on this earth is what, what it's meant to be. Fantastic. Yeah. No, I think if we all approach life that way, how do I leave the world a better place? How do I leave others that I interact with uh, in a better place? Uh, I think we, the world itself would be a better place for sure. Listeners, you can definitely find Mike on social media, Twitter and Instagram. The handles are at Mike Matta 65. You'll find Mike also on LinkedIn and his website, www.mikematta.info. Mike, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot today. Thanks, Tom. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about three strikes in grading reform that I've been talking about for a number of different years, and they come up in different contexts, etc. So many of the schools I've been working with over the last few months are really at the beginning stages of revamping their approach to grading. So these ideas keep coming up, they keep being fresh in my mind, so I thought I would talk about them here this week. Uh, one of the most interesting things about modernizing grading practices is that, there, is that there really is no one way to go about this work. There are, of course, some fundamentals that are non-negotiable. For example, you know, basing grades solely on the evidence of achievement against the standards. But for the most part, teachers, schools, and districts have a lot of flexibility in going about the business of aligning grading practices to the existing standards-based criteria and referenced instructional reality. 
There is no long list of rules, nor are there many always or nevers that drive this process. We certainly know through the research and practice what is the most favorable course of action, but still, there is a lot of local decision-making that goes into bringing our grading practices into the 21st century. Now, having said that, for me, there are three ways in which grading conversations go sideways, or can be short-sighted, or they can prove to be counterproductive. Now, over the years, I've seen a common pattern emerge for those teachers, schools, and districts whose implementation efforts kind of fall short of success. So while there is no definitive list of what to do, for me, there is a definitive list of what not to do, right? So from where I sit, I've always talked about these three strikes in grading reform that will actually quite predictably lead to disappointing, if not irreversible, results. These swings and misses, if you will, must be avoided to ensure that the verification and the reporting of learning, the summative purpose, reestablishes and maintains that seamless relationship with our existing instructional paradigm. Okay, strike one, having a grading conversation instead of having an assessment conversation. Grading doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's part of a larger balanced assessment system. And the balanced, even seamless relationship between the formative and summative purposes of assessment is compromised when the principles of sound assessment are not infused into how we grade. Now, Paul Black back in 2013 wrote, the formative and summative purposes of assessment can be so intertwined that they are mutually supportive rather than conflicting, that unless this is done, formative assessment cannot achieve its full potential to improve learning. So again, you improve learning through formative practice, you improve learning through feedback, you don't improve learning through grading. Grading is measurement. Uh, grading is not a strategy. Grading is not an intervention. So uh, again, I've said this many times, asking me how uh, standards-based grading will raise achievement is like asking me, how does my bathroom scale help me lose weight? That's not the purpose. But this mutually supportive relationship can't be achieved if the procedures of grading are foreign to how we assess within the larger assessment context, right? If we discuss grading issues in isolation, then we've kind of lost the plot because grading is assessment, right? As, as long as the fundamentals of assessment are applied, uh, they apply to verifying learning and are aligned to how we check for understanding. We've got to do that. We've got to keep that seamless. We've got to make sure that our grading practices adhere to sound assessment practices. Now, again, we can't just make up our own rules because we're grading. I, I suppose on one level we can. We can do whatever we want. Um, but if what we do isn't aligned to sound assessment fundamentals, then we can no longer claim to be providing accurate or meaningful information about achievement. I've been saying this to groups for a number of different years. If accuracy uh, uh, doesn't matter to you, then do whatever you want. Like you can have at it in your gradebook. But if accuracy does matter, and, and I know for you it does, then there are actually some rules we have to follow. So we've got to pay attention to that. Now at its core, again, grading must be about accuracy and consistency. So that's the ideas of validity and reliability. Validity is about ensuring that our assessment practices assess what we say they're assessing and intend them to assess. And it's mostly about making valid interpretations of the results. Now, many of our traditional grading practices have the potential to compromise the validity of an ass assessment or score within a grade book. So while we can get hung up on those issues when we talk about penalties and zeros, uh, you know, and get hung up on that accountability issue, the big miss here is not realizing how some of those traditional practices distort achievement levels. Now, reliability also must be established since 
we now teach within a criterion reference standards-based instructional paradigm. And we have been doing that for at least two decades, if not more, depending on where you work. The consistency with which teachers apply the agreed-upon criteria, often found in the form of a rubric, across you know, similar subjects at similar grade levels is critical if grades are, again, to remain meaningful. The same writing sample can't be a four in one class, but a two in another class. Now, from time to time, there's going to be some disagreement uh, that ultimately can't be reconciled, right? If, if you read something and say, I think it's a four, and I read it and I say it's a three, that's going to happen occasionally, but that should be the exception, not the rule. But being two levels apart, you know, somebody saying, I think this is exemplary, someone else saying, I think this is partway there, that's a problem. And that problem means one of us is wrong. One of us is misclassifying the student. Um, you shouldn't be able to win or lose the teacher lottery. So we have to have a larger assessment conversation, not just a grading conversation when we're trying to reform. Okay, strike two. Strike two is initiating this change through external or tangible elements. So another swing and a miss for me in grading reform is the belief that a new report card, a new board policy, or a new grading computer program is the key that unlocks the door to meaningful grading reform. Right? And this was the main premise behind uh, the book Grading from the Inside Out and why I wrote it is because I don't think that is the pathway to bringing about change. Now, the upside, of course, to, for example, implementing a new grading policy at a school or a district is you get forced compliance, which means everyone has to follow the policy or the process immediately. But the downside to implementing a new grading policy at a school or a district is you get forced compliance which means everyone has to follow the policy because they've been told to, not because they feel compelled to. Now, I can't count how many schools and districts have contacted me after hitting an implementation wall, or not just a dip, but an implementation wall, because they tried, for all the right reasons, I get why they did it, to force this change through policies, templates, or programs. Conversations about grading practices of course, are emotional. They're intense and they're complex. Forcing teachers to change practices when they don't agree or are not ready emotionally, that is just wrought with potential unnecessary challenges. Now, meaningful grading reform begins with changing the culture of what grades are. It changes how we think about grades, right? What they mean and reimagining the processes that, that determine grades. Meaningful, long-lasting change begins first by shifting, like I said, how we think and how we perceive what grades represent. When grades are an authentic reflection of learning or student proficiency, they become aligned to our instructional processes. But if a grade remains a commodity that's acquired through the accumulation of points or it remains compensation or this currency exchange, then they'll constantly be disconnected and remain a relic from days gone by. So... I know it's alluring to find a new grading program, a computer program. I know it's alluring to build a new report card or enact a new policy. It's overt. It sends an obvious signal. It sends a, a real obvious message that uh, we are changing. But from where I sit, this approach is doomed to fail since these premature but permanent uh, changes can often produce counterproductive results. It's it's. It's a heavy enough lift for teachers to rethink the role of grades or rethink the role even more granularly of something like homework um, without the added burden of revamping their entire grading system because of a policy that was enacted. Um, you know, 
change change doesn't always have to take a long time, but it must always take enough time so that you can feel relatively comfortable with uh, whatever we're changing to, right? So so it's not that change has to take a long time, but we always need enough time. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote in uh, 1962, uh, introduced the world to the idea of a paradigm shift, right? He, he was the one that kind of introduced that concept. Stephen Covey popularized it, but uh, he was the one that, that uh, brought that sort of to our society. And he wrote about the fact that Every breakthrough requires a break with tradition. And breaking with so many of our grading traditions is not that simple. It's not that easy. It's not that quick. Um, you know, there's a cliched expression that kind of goes um, as bottom up as possible and only as top down as necessary. And I think that holds true when it comes to grading reform. The reporting of achievement by standards is... Um, it's probably most effectively and efficiently achieved when teachers have standards-based evidence, of course, right? That's, that's the easier way to do it. Now, to have standards evidence, you have to have standard-organized assessments, which then come from standards-based instruction, right? So the report card of the policy of the grading program really should be, for me, the last thing to change, not the first thing to change, because you need to be doing standards-based instruction, which leads to those assessments, which gives you emerging evidence, which allows you to grade by standards, which would then allow you to report by standards. Okay, strike three, only addressing the clinical side of grading. And many of you have heard me talk about this before, but the electronic grade book is simultaneously one of the best and worst inventions in educational history, I think. The upside, of course, is we've never been more clinically efficient with our assessment information, but the downside is the potential loss of the art of grading. Now, electronic gradebooks and their inherent operational functions have convinced many educators that subjectivity is a four-letter word. But uh, as I've learned from so many, including Ken O'Connor, um, Ken often says, you know, grading is inherently subjective since it involves so many unavoidable choices that are made by teachers uh, and that the subjectivity of grading is nothing that we should apologize for. This is our professional judgment. Um, and that, to me, is what always separates a job from a profession. A profession requires professional judgment and decision-making. Now, in our never-ending quest to find the perfect algorithmic approach to calculating grades, it's easy to lose sight of the emotional side of grading. And I talked about that back in February, the emotional side of assessment. While grading you know, can feel quite clinical for teachers, especially high school teachers, where it just feels like you're filling in a spreadsheet, grades are very personal for, for kids. Uh, it's emotional. They're, it's more than just a number or a symbol or some canned description. All grades, uh, especially those on a report card, will produce an emotional reaction in each and every one of our learners. And while these emotions may sometimes be hidden or masked from the adults in their lives, it's rare that students truly don't care about their grades or about success. Now, publicly, of course, they're going to put on a brave face because kids do what we do. Everyone does what human beings do, and that is save face. But in their private moment, and I've had this experience so many for so many years back in the day, in their private moments when kids are more honest about how they feel, they show you that they care. And we have to remember this. We can't lose sight of the emotional side of grading. We can't lose sight of the fact that you know, kids are going to act like they don't care because that's just a way to save face in front of their peers and in front of the adults. So grades need to be accurate, of course, clinically. But grading practices should also take the emotional side of grading into account so that we don't just simply stand in righteousness 
some sort of righteous justification of, of our grading practices that ultimately result in students feeling hopeless about their potential success. Look, other than, you know, the aspect of grades based on standards, there, as I've said, are multiple pathways forward to find accuracy and meaningful grading and reporting. But there are a few simple don't do's that, if ignored, are going to result in an unnecessarily complex trajectory of change. So by creating the space to make changes without the mandate of a policy, a template, or a program, teachers can begin changing how they think about grading so that if or when the time comes for a more permanent, external, or tangible change, the culture itself is ready to make that shift without looking back and, and wondering, what, why are we doing this and, 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 and not getting that full commitment to it? Have an assessment conversation, right? Begin working inside out and never lose sight of the emotional impact of grading uh, and the impact it has on students. And you, your school, or even your district will be well on the way to meaningful, long-lasting grading changes that reestablish the seamless relationship between how we teach and how we report. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you have questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events coming this summer and also into the fall. Next week, my guest will be my friend Robbie Cobbs. Robbie is someone I met while I was working at the American International School in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, he's now in Puerto Rico running a nonprofit called Tech My School. Uh, it is a fascinating story about how Robbie ended up in Puerto Rico and why he started this nonprofit, and I can't wait for you to hear it next week. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will be helpful to grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.